So Philippians uh, 1. There is a, a section of every Target, Fries, and Walmart that some of us use a lot and others of us may not even know exists. Do you know what it is? What? The produce section, section, says Abby. (laughs) Some of us may struggle to find that. It starts with a hallmark. The cards. You know, there's an aisle, sometimes multiple aisles, in these stores where there's cards. Wow. Uh, My wife, Jill, is a card-writing beast. She is constantly writing people uh, letters of encouragement. I forgot to tell you I was going to say this. Sorry. Um, If you've never used this section of the store, uh, chances are you don't have anybody to use it for. But I would encourage you, so as you develop some friendships and family to go to Hallmark section of the store and use it. You'll find there that there are birthday cards, Mother's Day cards, funny cards, serious cards, graduation cards, Hanukkah cards, birthday announcement cards. There's a card for everything. It's incredible. Uh, My wife keeps literally boxes of cards around the house and nearly every day seems to be sending a card to someone. I would suggest you consider doing that. And guys in the room, as we're suggesting the use of cards, I wouldn't suggest going and getting a box of 10 that are all the same and thinking, I'll store these up one a year for my wife. She's going to notice. You got to make a little more effort than that. Uh, One of the most important cards you'll find in the card aisle is a sympathy card. Sympathy cards are cards we send when somebody's gone through a hard time. Did you know there's a sympathy card in the Bible? There is. There's several of them. And what preceded the letter of Philippians was apparently a sympathy card. When the Apostle Paul's dear friends at the church in Philippi heard that he's in prison again, they sent him a sympathy card. They were concerned that this great man of God who was used to bring the gospel to Philippi was again in a time of crisis and hardship. And like any great church would, they wanted to do something to bless him. I hope that we as a church see their example of care and concern for spiritual leaders and will pursue them in times of hardship. The Philippian church went even further, though, than just sending a a letter by Pony Express, if you will. They sent a letter, but they also sent a person. They sent one of their own members, a guy named Epaphroditus. And inside this letter, this card of sympathy, they sent a gift, a financial gift to provide for Paul's needs at the time. Now, the Philippian card to Paul no longer exists. We don't have it. But what we do have is Paul's response, Paul's return to them, and that is what the book of Philippians is. When Paul got, in other words, their sympathy card, he responded with a card of his own. Now understand, this was no obligatory thank you card. I have to admit I don't understand those. So 
If you go to a wedding and you give a gift, then it is expected that you would do what? Send a thank you card. Why is that necessary? Are are we like children that we have to get patted on the back for giving a gift to each other? I don't understand. Sometimes what happens is you give a gift and you get a thank you card. And then what do you feel responsible to do? Thank you for the thank you. And this could literally go on for the rest of your life. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's not what Philippians is. Philippians is not an obligatory thank you for the gift you gave me. Instead, it is a very intentionally crafted letter of thanks, of encouragement from a seasoned, godly, spiritual leader. And amazingly, 2,000 years later, people are still gathering to learn from this thank you card. God himself spoke and continues to speak through Paul's reply. Isn't that neat to think about? What kind of card did Paul send in return? It might not be what you expect. And the answer to that question could be the key to unlock a whole new perspective on how to handle hardship for you and me today. May God use it to instruct us particularly in how to think about suffering and difficulty in our lives as a church and in our lives of his individuals. So look with me, if you would, at Philippians 1. We'll start in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me. Let's stop there. A tiny bit of background is necessary to know what he's talking about. The letters in the New Testament, so everything from um, Romans all the way through the end of the Bible, are what we call uh, epistles or letters. They're occasional documents written in response to something that was going on in the first century. You'll find as you read these letters that it's a bit like Jeopardy. Any Jeopardy lovers? You are weird people. I do not understand that show, but I'm happy for you. That what, how does Jeopardy work? You, you have the answer, but then you got to figure out what the question is. In order to really ascertain what God's saying through the letters, part of what we have to do is figure out, well, what question was being asked that the letter seeks to address? Does that make sense? Yes. All right. You're going to have to use your brains a little bit today. So we know the answer, but what was the question? The Philippians wrote to Paul saying, how are you? We love you. We're so sorry this happened to you. Well, what happened? Well, through a process of reading the letter carefully, it's obvious that Paul's in a state of difficulty, that he was in prison again. But if that's all we knew from the letter of Philippians, we could piece together that he's in prison because of his faith. But beyond that, we really wouldn't know much. But an earlier book in the Bible called Acts fills in the details for us. And if I could just quickly walk through them, this would sort of be a a quick screenplay of the latter parts of the book of Acts. If you're not familiar with it, I would encourage you sometime this week to set aside 30 minutes, open up to Acts 19, 
and read through the rest of the letter. It is as exciting as any um, mysterious thriller you would go see in the movie theater. There's all kinds of crazy stuff. There's shipwrecks and snake bites and people arguing and fighting and this big question mark at the end, what happens to Paul? It's really exciting stuff. If you're bored with the Bible, quit reading it like a stale, fuddy-duddy Christian. Read it like you read any other book. It's exciting. It's compelling stuff. But here's what takes place. Paul has been repeatedly and highly persecuted as a Christian, but he wasn't always a Christian. Paul was a Jewish leader who rose to the very highest ranks he could get as a uh, Jewish man in the first century. After Jesus was crucified, resurrected, showed himself to a whole bunch of people, and then went back up to heaven, Paul set out to eradicate the spread of Christianity. And so he went around town to town to town looking for Christians, locking them up, taking them back to Jerusalem, and in some cases, even being present while people were murdered for their faith. But Paul became convinced that Jesus wasn't a lying lunatic. He, he found himself surprisingly converted to Christianity. And so the very faith he sought to end, he became the chief proponent of in the first century. Shocking. Amazing. Many other Jewish leaders, as you might imagine, weren't particularly excited about this change of mind in Paul's life. In fact, they wanted to kill him for preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. And so through a really bizarre series of events, Paul found himself locked up again. And he spent a little over two years in prison in a town called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, there are six people in the room here today. There may be more, but there's six I know of who have traveled and seen that city and observed the very cell in which Paul would have been held for two years. And Paul appealed to see Caesar. So he, in essence, as a Roman citizen, claimed, I want to go to see the highest court in the land. Now, there's all kinds of speculation about why he did that. Uh, Paul was likely not the easiest person to be around. He was a challenging, direct, confrontational, bold guy. And so as he was continually getting beat up and persecuted for his faith, he didn't want to hide in a corner. And so eventually he just said, well, take me to Caesar and we'll see what the Supreme Court says about this. Most likely, he wrote Philippians under house arrest in Rome, awaiting either his exoneration and release or his execution. Now, remember, this is a real guy, not just words on a page, not just stories. This is a real person. A real person who had been experiencing the very best highest, most esteemed kind of life a Jewish man could have sought after. All the accolades and academics and respect and reputation he could want. Gave it all up to be a preacher of the gospel of Christ. And in obedience to God, found himself continually beat, 
mocked and imprisoned. So over here, he thought he was obeying God and was living a good life. Over here, he thought he was obeying God. And the scriptures would tell us was in fact obeying God. But life was getting more and more and more and more difficult. Has that been your experience? Have you found, those of you in the room who are believers, that as you've matured in the Lord, that externally things haven't gotten easier? Maybe not. this is not as extreme as Paul's case. You haven't been beaten with rods and had stones thrown at you till they thought you were dead. You might have been stoned differently, but not that kind of stone. Paul's experience was life externally became harder as he followed the Lord. And remember, over two years by this point, Paul's in prison. He spent time in prison in the town of Philippi. And so when these friends of his in the town of Philippi heard, he's locked up again in another town, and he's been there a really long time. They sent him a sympathy card, and he sent them a card in return. So that's what Paul's referring to. I want you to know what has happened to me. Is Paul traveling around preaching the gospel and starting churches anymore? No. He can't. Instead, he's got a shackle on his leg, and on the other end of that chain is a Roman guard, someone there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Despite having committed no, no crime, Paul battled to survive in prison. Now, can you imagine the agony the church in Philippi experienced as they saw their hero in the faith, again, facing trial and hardship. Now, we'd expect, perhaps, that Paul might say something like this. I want you to know, church, that I'm really struggling. I want you to know, church, that I've had days of doubting God is still good. I want you to know, church, that I've had days of wondering does he love me and want the best of me? Would it be understandable to read those words? Aren't those the things that we're tempted to feel? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has nearly destroyed my faith. Those would be incredibly understandable words for Paul to have uttered. But listen to the rest of the sentence. Verse 21, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Huh? The, the world's foremost expert missionary, the guy who started more churches than anybody else, says, what's happened to me? So being locked up for years has actually served the cause of Christ. Huh? How could that be? How has that advanced the gospel? How is it that the suffering of one has meant the progress of many? How is that even possible? 
isn't suffering to be avoided at all costs. We would seem to think so today. One of our greatest industries is the industry of seeking to relieve pain in all its forms. Suffering seems to be something we believe should be avoided no matter what. Now, uh, this will be no surprise to those of you who know me closely. I got D's in math all the way through school, even with tutors. God did a numberectomy on me. I just can't do it. But even I understand this equation. Pain equals bad. Lack of pain equals good. Right? Even the baby understands. No suffering at all, ever. Only good things, God. Suffering hurts. Don't let me face anything hard. If you love me and you're good and you're powerful, then take care of me. Preserve me from suffering. But that's not at all what Paul says. It's as though the Philippians sent him a sympathy card, and in response, Paul sends them a get well card. And he says, your thinking is sick. You don't really understand. Let me try to show you how you ought to think about this. The gospel is advancing. You've got this all wrong. Now, how could that be? How could the good news that Jesus makes it possible for broken sinners to be rescued and welcomed into a relationship with God be advancing through the trial and hardship and suffering and imprisonment of its foremost spokesman. How in the world can that be true? Or to bring it more closely to home for us, is it possible that the most awful thing that you have faced could be the very thing that God wants to turn on its head and use for you to proclaim Christ through. Is that possible? Well, let's read and see Paul's basis for this outrageous claim. And I'll read verse 12 again. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known, and now he's going to start giving us the reasons. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, have be, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak without fear. Some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here in defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Paul says, my suffering has advanced the gospel. And then he gives three specific reasons. And all I want to do in our remaining time is simply express those to you. One, he says, outsiders are hearing. So the gospel is going forward because non-Christians are hearing the gospel. 
Two, he says, insiders, so fellow believers, are being emboldened. They're more courageous. And then finally, maybe the most surprising of the three, he says, motives aside, Christ is being proclaimed. So outsiders are hearing, insiders are being emboldened, motives aside, Christ is proclaimed. Let's consider those briefly together. But before we look at the specifics, don't miss the the 30,000-foot view, if you will. The only way these paragraphs make any sense at all is if we understand that Paul's highest, greatest, most passionate pursuit in life was not the avoidance of suffering. It was the spread of the gospel of Christ. Friends, if our highest aim is the eradication of hardship in our life, then paradoxically what will happen is we will inevitably produce more hardship in our lives because we will avoid the very things God wants to use to grow us up in the Lord. Now, I'm not saying if there's not emotional distress not to talk to a friend or even go to a counselor, or if there's chronic pain not to seek the alleviation of that pain. But I am saying for a Christian, life is not about ceasing difficulty. It's about proclaiming Christ. That's the only way this makes any sense at all because Paul's life had not gotten easier. Objectively, it had become more difficult. Is the growth of the gospel a source of joy and excitement for you? Do you treasure seeing someone who already knows the Lord take take that next step of faith? Does your heart leap when someone who had been a part of the kingdom of darkness joins the kingdom of light? Is that a source of joy? For Paul, it was. May God awaken us from spiritual apathy as we consider these words today. Paul said the gospel was advancing while he was in prison because outsiders were hearing. In essence, what he's saying is people that may have never heard of Christ are hearing of Christ. And then he uses this little phrase, the imperial guard. What's he talking about? That is the the equivalent in our society of what we would call the secret service. So the people who guard the most important folks in governmental leadership in our nation are the secret service. So the people who have the ear and the the presence of the president, the vice president, the secretary of state, the governors of our states. Those are the secret service. This was the secret service of Rome. So Paul is reasoning, as I'm thinking about Christianity spreading throughout the Roman Empire, I want the poorest of the poor to hear the good news. I also want the most powerful people to hear the good news. And so Paul's seeing, I've got people chained to me literally for the next 24 hours. They're not getting away without hearing about Jesus. <laughs> Have you ever had that experience of being on a plane and getting in a conversation with someone and you didn't expect to go into a gospel presentation, but it just happens. 
And they are increasingly interested in the boring ads in the magazines in front of them. But they can't get away. You're on a plane. Paul had that for days and weeks and months and years. And I bet he just hounded people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I bet he told them, you can chain me, but you can't chain the word of God. I bet Paul would have found himself proclaiming the gospel all the time. And so he can say, even though I'm not preaching to big gatherings of people, I'm telling person after person after person after person after person that Jesus is alive. He found himself exploding with love for God and love for people. So he said, it's good that I'm locked up because the gospel's still going out. Now, the second thing he says is that insiders are emboldened. In other words, confidence is growing among the Christians in Rome. They're bolder to share the good news that Jesus saves. God has done the unthinkable, welcoming back with open arms people who rejected me, people who said, I don't need God. God won them over. Maybe the most direct thing I'll say today, and I want to say it with love, but with boldness, is, oh, how I wish we would stop freaking out about Donald and Hillary and instead lovingly, gently, passionately proclaim Jesus is on the throne. If some of you spent 5% of the time that you spend uptight about who's going to sit in the Oval Office next, instead proclaiming the one who's really in the heavenly Oval Office, how many more people would hear the gospel? Friends, God forgives, he cleanses, he removes shame and guilt, he cancels judgment because of Christ. And then he gathers us into little groups that are weird and eclectic where the gospel's put on display. That's what the church is. Jesus saves. Yes, Paul was suffering, but because he didn't turn away, then Christians who may have if they faced hardship, without seeing someone endure, instead found courage. Have you ever found yourself stronger in the things of the Lord because you've seen somebody else go through something that you're not so sure you could have made it through? I hope so. I hope you're in deep enough relationships that you see that. Because as I stand here every Sunday... I see and look out on faces of people experiencing very significant trial and hardship who are still here, who still love Jesus, who some days have really hard questions for God, but they're pressing on. And that encourages me, and I hope it does you. That's what Paul was saying is happening in Rome. That because he's shackled and he's still by God's grace, explaining and exclaiming the gospel that other people who weren't in chains found themselves doing that. Friends, when people face hardship because they follow Jesus, the end result ought to be a more glorious and healthy, vibrant walk with God. 
Because we find through those experiences that Jesus is better. That Jesus is better than anything. That's what people saw as they looked on and saw Paul continuing to press on. Brothers and sisters, this is a message we urgently need to hear in America. God is enough. Christ is sufficient. Jesus is worth any difficulty or hardship we might face. I read somebody say this week that when they grew up in church and people would say amen, they thought they were just saying raymen. So that's the kind of thing you ought to say raymen to, right? Christ is worth it. Thank you. Friends, suffering for faith is coming to the United States. Here, it's not likely in the near future, if ever, that we're going to face physical persecution. I very much doubt systemic persecution of Christians in a physical, locking you up in jail kind of way is coming anytime soon. It's not likely that any of us are going to be beaten or killed for our faith. But social alienation, economic hardship, job terminations, being passed over for promotions, decreased ability to directly influence the public square, loss of friends, public protections, freedom of speech to say all that the Bible says, those things are passing. If you don't see that, it's because you're not paying attention. It is very clearly happening at an incredibly high rate of speed. How will we handle this as Christians? So far, I think the majority of Christians in America are not handling it well. We are reacting politically. We are posting all kinds of garbage on Facebook. We're not praying. Do we know God enough to endure hardship for our faith? Will you still trust God when as a high schooler you're mocked in your classroom, not by a peer, but by your, your, your teacher? When you find that what you're studying at ASU is such at odds with your faith that you can't even get through the program. Do we know God enough to endure hardship? Will we be ruined by suffering? We will if our faith is not real. But if our faith is authentic and deep in the soil of God's word, we'll not only be sustained in trial, we'll be sanctified in it. We'll come to know God more. 
We'll love each other better. And our witness for the cause of Christ will be stronger. A book I read on this this week was really helpful to me. Here's a couple of sentences from it. Paul's example is impressive and clear. Put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. Our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendor of the gospel. If we don't believe that, thousands of people are going to walk away from Christianity. Hundreds of churches are going to close in America. And I am not a pessimistic doomsday, let's put charts up and figure out the date of the apocalypse. As Christians, we're called upon to put the, gospel, the advance of the gospel at the very center of our aspirations. So what are our aspirations? To make money, to get married, to travel, to see your grandchildren grow up, to find a new job, to retire early? None of these are inadmissible. None is to be despised. The question is whether these aspirations become so devouring that the Christian's central aspiration is squeezed into the periphery or choked out of its existence entirely. We have no reason to panic. We serve at the pleasure of the king with all power. But we've got to be in this for the king, not for temporal benefits. Friends, God offers us a get well card from our thinking in the book of Philippians. Not from the pain of persecution, but from the folly of an earthly perspective on that suffering. So for the person with cancer sharing the reason for his hope and peace with the nurses in the hospital, the gospel is advancing. For the teenager belittled by the teacher and classmates for her faith, not responding with harshness, but with this strange blend of kindness and compassionate firmness. The gospel is advancing. For the coworker at the cost of his own reputation who buys his Muslim coworker lunch every Thursday to build a relationship with this man who in our society is so misunderstood and ill-treated. The gospel is advancing. For the stay-at-home mom who drags her screaming children to the park again, and lets them play when it's inconvenient because she wants to engage other moms. The gospel is advancing. For the college student pursuing a holy lifestyle and sharing class with sweetmates despite being ridiculed and mocked for it, the gospel is advancing. Friends, if we live in community as brothers and sisters in Christ, we will see each other facing difficulty. And God will use that to grow our courage. And even though externally life may get harder, internally, you're going to develop a rock-solid peace and joy that cannot be taken away. So Paul says, I'm pressing on. The gospel is advancing because outsiders are hearing the gospel. Insiders are getting more and more and more bold. Not defensive, not obnoxious, more loving and courageous to share the truth. But then that third thing he says is so weird. 
He says, motives aside, Christ is being proclaimed. That might seem really odd to you. It might not make sense. But for anyone who's ever held a public ministry before, I can tell you it doesn't sound weird at all. The temptation to use the things of God for personal aggrandizement and accolades is ever-present. The temptation to receive praise from people at the expense of God getting the glory is understood by every mature pastor who's had to wrestle with motives. Paul was hurt not only by the circumstances of being in prison, but by the loss of friendships and by people using his imprisonment to say, see, don't follow him. Follow me instead. But in an amazing display of godly humility, Paul said in the end, I don't, I don't really care as long as Jesus is first. Is Jesus that high on your list? That people literally could have ill words for you, sinfully ill words, and yet still be boasting in Jesus and that be enough? That's a challenging word. Are you willing to endure even selfish and hurtful things so that Christ is proclaimed? If not, today's a day to repent, to enjoy the grace of God, and to start anew. Raymond? And if you're here today and don't consider yourself a Christian, how does all this sound to you? Hopefully it sounds absolutely ridiculous. Because if it's not true, it is. And so our hope for you would be that you would grapple with, is the Christian faith real? Did Jesus actually come to earth, live the life the Bible says he lived, died the death that, frankly, hardly anyone, even very liberal scholars, would deny? Nearly everyone says he did die. Did he historically, in history, an actual event, rise from the dead? If so, what difference and claim does that make upon your life? Christians would say, if it's not true, then go build your life around yourself. If it is true, then suddenly that gospel message becomes the blazing center of everything. So if you're not a believer, we would love not to try and sell you a used car and pressure you into something you don't want, but to enter into loving dialogue with you and invite you to consider the claims of Christ. So pursue somebody in the room. Find me on the patio. We'd love to help you explore if this Jesus is real. Let's pray. Father, Paul doesn't have easy words for us today, but he has a joyful, amazing, freeing message for us. That message is Christ is better. Christ is better than the easy life he had. 
And even as he was in hardship, the gospel was going forth. And so, Father, I pray for brothers and sisters here today who are facing trials of various kinds. That, God, the testing of their faith would produce endurance. And that endurance would have its full effect of bringing about maturity in Christ. I pray for those of us in the room who this week shied away from things where we should have stood up for someone, where we should have said a particular behavior is wrong and destructive, where we should have taken that incredibly scary step of saying, yes, I I actually believe the gospel. where you provided an opportunity and all we had to do was walk across the room to share the gospel and we didn't do it. Father, forgive us. Replace that fear of people with a far more appropriate awe and respect of you and a joy and confidence in the gospel that's unshakable. Help us, Church on Mill, and all the churches in America to stand with Christ far before we stand with any political leader. And may we not be afraid to enter into increasing hostility that the gospel may go forward. I pray also for those in the room who might not yet believe in, know, trust, understand Christ or the gospel message. We pray, Lord, that we would be a safe church in which Christianity could be explored in godly, kind, sensitive, gentle ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.